You're listening to the podcast of Village Church in Burbank, California. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org. We hope you enjoy today's message. Our text this weekend is uh, Psalm 23, very simply. And I, you, you, you don't have to turn there. In fact, I, I might prefer that you not. I, I want you to close your eyes. And rather than reading it, let's hear it and let's experience Psalm 23. And I'm just going to quote it to you. Let your mind just fill with the imagery in this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. I want to focus this evening on that line in the middle, I will fear no evil. The New Testament speaks of fear in terms of being a spirit. There's a spirit of fear. Now most of the time, not all the time, but most of the time when the New Testament uses the word spirit, it's what we mean when we use the word attitude. You won't find the word attitude as such in the Bible, but most of the time when the New Testament uses the word spirit, it's what we mean by the word attitude. That is a settled way of thinking that becomes pervasive and influences all of our life. Well, fear is a spirit. An attitude, a settled way of thinking that becomes pervasive and influences all of our life. Let's think about fear this evening. We live in a culture, I believe, is dominated by fear. And fear is a tool because fearful people are easy to manipulate and control. We can all think of numerous examples. I'm thinking in particular of some of the harebrained conspiracy theories that have popped up over the last few years. I've taken note of many people I've become acquainted with throughout my life in recent years who I would otherwise consider to be perfectly intelligent, rational, reasonable, free-thinking human beings that just somehow or another get caught up and obsessed with some of the most preposterous conspiracy theories you can possibly imagine. And listen to me, all of that is a deep manifestation of fear. 
And when people are afraid, they're easy to manipulate. They're easy to steer and control. The devil uses fear. And those voices in our culture that are constantly trying to tell you to be afraid of something all the time, and I'm thinking especially of the media right now. How many of you know the media can be a persistent voice of fear in our lives? And it's nonpartisan. It, like, no matter what your political persuasion is, the topics and themes and all of that changes, but the spirit is the same. And those voices that are constantly trying to instill fear in your mind, listen to me, they want something from you. They want your money, perhaps. They want your vote. They want your allegiance. I'm not a political analyst. I'm not an economist. I, I'm the furthest thing from that. I don't know anything about that. I'm the last person in this room that knows any about, anything about those things. But I do know when people are using fear. I know tactics of fear when they're being used to manipulate. I'm wise to those ways. And I'm just telling you when... When you encounter those voices in our culture that are constantly trying to instill messages of fear, they want something from you. They want your vote. They want your allegiance. They want your money. But most of all, what they want is power. That's really what they're after, is power. And oftentimes, consciously, but sometimes instinctively, they know that they can use fear to get power. Advertisers do it. They, they do it all the time, and they know what they're doing. They do it very consciously. Politicians do it, I think, mostly instinctively. Preachers do it. Shame on them. Governments do it all the time. They all do it, but listen to me. It's not from God. God does not give us the spirit of fear. In other words, God does not give us fear as a settled way of thinking that becomes pervasive and influences all of our life. God does not traffic in the fear market as others do. When Jesus encounters fear among his disciples, his response is always the same. Why are you afraid? O ye of little faith. Where's your faith? What happened to your faith? So, Jesus diagnoses fear as something deficient in the realm of trust in God. If you don't have a real vibrant trust in the reality of God taking care of you, it's going to be evidenced by fear. In fact, maybe we could say it like this. How do you know if you're someone who's growing in faith? How do you know if you're someone who increasingly is learning to live by faith. I think maybe one of the evidences, one of the indicators, is that those who are constantly trying to use fear to manipulate you, they look silly to you. Now, if they don't, if what they're doing and saying makes sense to you, it's because it's, their tactics are working and they're able to manipulate you. But when you arrive at a place where you are actively and authentically trusting God legitimately for his care and his provision and his protection, as that happens, as that's developing your life, you become hyper aware of those that are using fear to manipulate. And either it looks silly to you or you might even get a little bit angry because you know what they're up to. To live by faith is not merely to affirm some generic Christian beliefs. Now, I believe that we need to confess the historic creeds 
the foundational beliefs of Christianity. I actually do that just about every day of my life. I like to hear myself say it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, on and on it goes. I just like to rattle that off every day. Remind myself I'm a Christian and this is what I stand on. I didn't make this thing up. I am the product of 2,000 years of rich faith tradition that's been handed down to me. So I believe that we, we ought to assent to right beliefs, but that's not nearly enough to describe a person who's living by faith. I think a lot of times we want to think of ourselves as people of faith simply because we believe right things. But then we put our trust for security in everything but God, leaving God as a last resort. But seeking the false comfort of false security is something the Hebrew prophets always denounce. Now, now go with me for just a moment. Let's, let's look back at what we call the Old Testament. So, at the very beginning of the biblical story, we meet a guy named Abraham, and God chooses Abraham, Genesis 12. He chooses a man, and eventually from this man comes a family. And then from this family grows a tribe, and then eventually out of this tribe grows an entire nation of people, God's covenant people, God's covenant nation, Israel. But eventually when we arrive at Jesus, he radically expands the boundaries so that what it means to be the people of God, it's, it's not based on uh, Jewish ethnicity or the external boundary markers of Jewish identity. Rather, uh, to be the people of God is based upon faith, allegiance unto God's Messiah, and baptism and confession in His name. So that even Gentiles as Gentiles get in on this thing. But between Abraham and Jesus... Israel, the idea is that Israel would be the people of God. But to be the people of God is more than just some sort of status that you wear like a badge. It means that you really do live by this radical trust in God's care and His provision and His protection. And too often when Israel failed to do that, and instead, wore their um, identity as God's people. They wore it just as a, a badge, a status. And yet they started putting their trust in all of the things that all of these other nations were putting their trust in. That's when the Hebrew prophets would rebuke them and denounce them. I'll give you three examples. First of all, the Hebrew prophets denounced Israel for putting their trust in kings and princes. When you read the Old Testament, one of the things you'll notice is that God really never intended for Israel to have a king. God was to be their king. But Israel just didn't have the imagination for this. Their imagination had been stunted and constricted by the Gentile nations around them. They looked around, they said, well, Assyria's got a king. Egypt's got a king. All these Canaanite nations around us, they've got kings. Babylon's got a king. So I guess we need to have a king. And so God has called them to be distinct and separate and unique and to do something new with them. And rather, they just don't have the imagination for it. They want a king. So eventually God says, fine, I'll give you a king, but you're not going to like it. And it's not going to go well for you. But fine, here's your king. Secondly, the Hebrew prophets denounced Israel for putting their trust in chariots and horses what we would call military apparatus. Now, the idea 
was that during times of national crisis, the Spirit of God would move upon a leader, they would blow the shofar, they would blow this ram's horn, and it would rally the men of Israel, and they would together fight for the cause of Jehovah, fight for the cause of Israel. But Israel was never intended to have a standing army. Did you know that? Again, they just didn't have the imagination for this. They look around, they say, Assyria's got a standing army. Babylon's got a standing army. Egypt's got a standing army. We ought to have a standing army. And the prophets denounced them. You'll see, for example, in the Psalms where it talks about some trust in chariots and horses, but our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. But too often, that wasn't actually the case. And they started looking at all these nations. Their imagination had been formed. Uh, maybe we could say it this way, conformed to the pattern of the world around them. And God denounces them through the Hebrew prophets. Third example is that the Hebrew prophets denounced Israel for putting their trust in political alliances. You especially see that in the prophetic ministry of Jeremiah during a time when uh, Judah was kind of feeling the imposing presence of that empire to the north, Babylon, and they were feeling vulnerable. Rather than exploring what it means to put trust in God's radical care. We're God's covenant people. He's covenanted to keep his hand on us and protect us. Instead, out of fear, they look south and try to forge a political alliance with Egypt of all nations. And Jeremiah calls them out. He says, wait, you're supposed to be in a covenant with God. You're God's people. You're called to put your trust in him. Here you are looking south, putting your trust in in the security of Egypt, but it's a broken reed and it cannot save you. And so you see in the Old Testament, Israel having no imagination, governed by fear, wanting to act like all the other nations, putting their trust in kings and princes and chariots and horses and political alliances, and they get rebuked by the prophets. As far as I can tell, nothing much has changed. Do we as the people of God, do we really authentically trust God any more than Old Testament Israel? I've noticed this, I'm just going to say it out loud, I've noticed this just over the last few years. Increasingly, it seems that many American Christians, if not most, will tell you, if we don't have the right president in office, if we don't have the right military apparatus if we don't have the right political alliance we don't have enough security and they will play the fear card on you and they will tell you if these things don't change all these terrible things are going to happen i've even say i've even heard people say the fate of the church is at stake and i just refuse to listen to any of it every morning of my life i pray psalm 91 or at least a section of Psalm 91. And Psalm 91 is my security system. And I mean that. Like, I'm not being cute. That's not like preacher's rhetoric. I'm not just saying that because it's my topic tonight. I'm telling you, hook me up to a lie detector test. My security system is Psalm 91. If you come up to me at the end of the service and say, Ryan, I know you said that for the podcast so we can get recorded, but really, is Psalm 91, is that really all you have for a security system? I'm telling you God's honest truth. Psalm 91 is my, his, my security system. And if you say, Ryan, isn't that, aren't you being reckless? Aren't you being uh, 
unrealistic? Isn't that a little uh, irresponsible? It's worked for 41 years. And fear does not drive my life. Now, I got a lot of flaws. I'm a flawed human being. But fear is not my settled way of thinking. It is not pervasive, and it does not influence all my life. It's just simply not. I live at relative peace. I want to read Psalm 91 to you. And again, it, it, it's actually going to be on the screen, but, but maybe you just listen to it. Maybe you close your eyes and listen to it again. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. I pray that every single day. Every day I pray that. For he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it, it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. The Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be, be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. And then God speaks and he says this, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's my security system. I'll explain how it works in just a moment, but that's my security system. So when I see these guys in the media trying to manipulate me with the tool of fear to get my vote or my allegiance or my money, I, I just laugh at them. Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Now, understanding the origin of evil is a very, very difficult and I'd say impossible task. It's really a great mystery. Where does evil come from? Why does evil exist? I don't think you can explain it. Some people, they'll say, well, you know, it comes from the devil who's a fallen angel. Okay, but why did he fall? Well, because he sinned. Okay, but why did even the temptation exist to sin? Well, because I'm just telling you, you can't get to the bottom of it. It's a great mystery. But for hundreds and hundreds of years, one of the most basic Christian understandings of evil is that it is parasitic in nature what i mean by that is evil is evil is not a thing that exists unto itself sometimes you'll hear people refer to what they call pure evil but actually there's no such thing as pure evil because it's not a thing that exists on its own unto itself 
Evil is a parasite. It's a corruption. It's a distortion of something that was at one time good. It's a kind of vandalism. Uh, St. Augustine, probably be good for me to quote a theologian here. Uh, St. Augustine, he gives us this analogy, and I think it's very helpful. He compares the nature of evil. He says it's like a hole in a garment. If I, if I tell you there's a hole in your shirt, and I'm pointing at it, we all know what I'm talking about, and we can see it. You can see what I'm pointing at. But what I'm actually pointing at, literally, is nothing. A hole is not something. It's, it's nothing. It's, it's a corruption in the goodness of the fabric. But you can't have a hole in nothing. You have to have a hole in something. Well, God's good creation has some holes in it. That's the nature of evil. But evil could not exist without God's good creation. So the psalmist here talks about being in the valley of the shadow of death, but fearing no evil. You can draw a direct line between death and evil because all evil is in some way related to the ultimate evil, which is death, which is the antithesis of everything that God calls good. And all fear is in some way related to the fear of death. It may not necessarily be as directly connected as the fear of actual physical demise, but all fear in some way is related to the fear of death. That is the fear of loss. You know, there's the loss of health, the loss of honor, the loss of dignity, the loss of financial security, the loss of control, on and on. All fear is ultimately related to the fear of death. That is the fear of some kind of catastrophic loss of some good thing in our life. Now watch this. It's the fear of death that Jesus conquered by entering all the way down into death and blowing it apart from the inside out. How many of you, uh, I've quoted St. Augustine. Now let me, let me talk about Men in Black. <laughs> How many of you remember the movie Men in Black? It's about 30 years old. Men in Black. It's a classic, man. It's a great movie. It's not like Gone with the Wind or anything like that, but it's a good movie. Um, Men in Black. You got Tommy Lee Jones, Will Smith, the main characters. They're like this government age agency. They're out to go whack these uh, secret aliens that are in disguise as human beings and all of this. And so you got all these aliens around, and, and they're the Men in Black. They're the government agency. And you remember there's this... Um, Seen at the very end of the movie. I don't mean to spoil this for you, but you've had 30 years. <laughs> and at the very end of Men in Black, you remember there's this giant cockroach alien. I don't know what to call it. Alien cockroach. It's a cockroach that's like 50 feet tall, and it's actually an alien. But it's a roach. And it's disgusting. And it's impenetrable. It's like no matter what they shoot at this thing, it doesn't affect this thing. This, this cockroach, this giant cockroach, is unstoppable and invincible. And you remember at the very end of the movie, Tommy Lee Jones, he's got his like alien zapper, but it's useless on this thing. And remember what he does? He stands there and he allows this giant alien cockroach to swallow him up. Remember that? So Tommy Lee Jones gets swallowed up inside of a cockroach. He's laying there in the guts of this cockroach. And then from the inside out, he zaps this thing and it blows this roach 
to bits all over the place. It's one of the most disgusting scenes in all of cinematic history. But I'm telling you, it might be the most theologically astute analogy of what Jesus does in the resurrection. When Jesus goes to the cross, he is allowing death, the ultimate cockroach, he is allowing death to swallow him up, and in his resurrection, he blows it apart from the inside out. That's what he does. One of these Easter's, I'm going to show that clip. I promise you. I'm going to do it. I'm not even joking. I'm going to show that clip. But through his death, by his death, watch this. Uh, look at this verse in Hebrews 2. Look at what it says here. Profound verse. Since therefore the children, you and I, we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise shared the same things, flesh and blood, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the, say it, power of death. That is the devil. And watch this. And he frees those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. So Jesus, by his death, he not only defeats death, he liberates us from the fear of death, thereby he sets us free from the fear of evil. It's because we are resurrection people that we can fear no evil. That's why I say Psalm 91 is my security system. I don't care what you do to me. I'm a, I'm a child of the resurrection. I am secure in Christ. So the reason you should not fear evil, even in the valley of the shadow of death, is twofold. Number one, because you're not alone. Jesus is with you, even when you, it doesn't matter what situation you're in, where you're in, even when you feel forsaken, you're not forsaken. You're not alone. Jesus is with you. Secondly, you should not fear evil in the valley of the shadow of death because it's not a dead end. See, that's why we fear death. There's something instinctive to us that makes us feel like death is final, that death is the end of something, it's, it's the end of everything, that it's a dead end. But the valley of the shadow of death is not a dead end. Jesus will lead you through to resurrection. Even if this, that, or the other thing for the Christian dies, that doesn't mean anything. If we haven't learned anything else from the gospel of Christ, we've learned this, that death is not final. And Jesus is with you, you're not alone, Death is not a dead end. Jesus will lead you through. It's the witness of the resurrection. Amen. I feel like it's Easter Sunday right now. Now this week, all week long, I've been meditating on this phrase that you see on the screen. I will fear no evil. I've just carried that with me all week, meditating on this. What does this mean? What are the implications? I will fear no evil. Fearing evil causes people to respond to evil with evil. Evil is energized by fear. We can say it like this. Evil feeds on fear and multiplies itself. When you see a person, it doesn't even matter what the topic of conversation is, what, what they're arguing about. When you see a person who is easily triggered who is instantly emotionally reactive, quick to anger, you're, you're looking at someone who is haunted by deep fear. And it's their fear that's causing them to respond to evil with evil. Fear generates evil. Evil generates fear. It's this vicious cycle. 
And it's a cycle that Jesus wants to break in our lives when we obey him by his grace, what he says in the Sermon on the Mount, resist not the evil person. And he says, if they strike you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek. Do not resist the, other, the evil person. Otherwise, all you're doing is feeding evil out of fear. Fear of evil multiplies evil. That's why Jesus says, don't resist the evil person. But what do we do? What do we do if, if we're in that scenario? Instead of responding to evil with evil, what do we do in a moment like that? We do what Jesus tells us just a little bit later in the Sermon on the Mount when he addresses the top of, topic of anxiety. And he says, consider the lilies. Or maybe this is a good translation, think about flowers. I think you ought to do that. I think... You ought to go outside. Get, get out from under these lights. Go outside. Not right now, but after the service maybe. Go outside. Go work in your garden. Feel the wind brush against your face. And be still. And know that God is God. And be reminded that ultimately beauty and goodness triumphs over evil and God is on the throne. I want to... Um, tell you this story and I'm going to close with this and and Daniel would you come just Daniel just begin to play softly on the piano I'm going to tell you a story Leonard Wolf was an English author he was born in 1880 he died in 1969 he lived to be 89 years old he was a writer he was a political theorist but Probably what he's most famous for is being the husband of Virginia Woolf. She was the more well-known writer of the two. But in 1966, Leonard Woolf published a book entitled Downhill All the Way. And it's an autobiographical account of what life was like for him living in England in the years leading up to World War II. It's a 254 page book and I wanna to read to you the closing paragraph of this book. This is how this autobiographical account of the years leading up to World War II experienced by Leonard Wolf in England, this is how he closes his account. I will end with a little scene that took place in the last months of peace. They were the most terrible months of my life, for helplessly and hopelessly, one watched the inevitable approach of war. One of the most horrible things at that time was to listen on the wireless to the speeches of Hitler, the savage and insane ravings of a vindictive underdog who suddenly saw himself to be all-powerful. We were in Rodmel, that was their country home. We were in Rodmel during the late summer of 1939, and I used to listen to those ranting, raving speeches. One afternoon I was planting in the orchard under an apple tree Iris reticulata those lovely violet flowers. Suddenly I heard Virginia's voice calling to me from the sitting room window, Hitler is making a speech. I shouted back, I shan't come. I'm planting iris and they will be flowering long after he is dead. 
He writes, last March, this is 1966, last March, 21 years after Hitler committed suicide in the bunker, a few of those violet flowers still flowered under the apple tree in the orchard. The end. Consider the lilies. Fear no evil. Fret not the evil person. Show me that picture of Adolf Hitler on the screen. You know what that is? That's fear talking to you. That's evil talking to you. That's evil generating fear and fear generating evil in that vicious cycle. Now show me the next picture. This is Iris Reticulata. And by the way, this is not some stock photo. This is Rodmel. This is, this is exactly where he's talking about. I don't know what your Hitler of fear is, but perhaps you should stop listening to it. Perhaps you should change the channel. Hitler's on the radio? I shan't come. I like that phrase. You ought to say that. That's what you should say. And when the voice of fear starts going off in the radio of your head, telling you all these terrible things are going to happen if, if this selection doesn't go a certain way or this or that and the other thing doesn't happen, all these terrible things are going to happen, you know what you're going to say? You're going to say, I shan't come. I shan't listen. The flowers will still be blooming long after the fear is gone. I'm not going to consider the voice of fear in the radio of my head. I'm going to consider the lilies. The flowers are going to outlive your fear. Consider the lilies of the field. Put your trust in God and be at peace. Thank you for listening to today's message. To learn more about Village Church, visit our website at villagechurchburbank.org.